As I said in the announcements this evening, the Ascension is a very weird event. Uh, the culture certainly doesn't get on board with it the way they do other Christian celebrations, especially like Christmas, but even Easter as well. Uh, but even the church has a hard time getting excited about the Ascension. It's just so weird. Are we supposed to think of Jesus as the first astronaut? What's going on when he rides on that cloud up into the heavens? How does it work? And if he went from this earth into heaven to be seated at the Father's right hand, we can get just as confused as Thomas in the gospel lesson I just read, wondering what does it mean? Uh, Where is Jesus going? How is he getting there? And how can we follow him? And now to make matters even worse, I'm going to read from the book of Revelation. Uh, So this is from Revelation chapter 15. Uh, I'll read eight, uh, eight verses that make up this chapter. So here again, God's word. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. After these things, I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do admit that the ascension of Jesus baffles us in so many ways. And yet we know it's so important because it's all over the place in your scriptures. It's all over our hymns and our creeds. Father, help us to understand this event, even in in its weirdness. May we enter into the deep weirdness of your word so that we might be strengthened in our faith, so we might come to a deeper understanding of what you have done for us, what you are doing for us, what you will do for us in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. In the beginning, God made the heaven and the earth. On the first day, God said, let there be light. And there was light, light shining down from heaven onto the earth. And God saw the light and declared it was good. On the second day, God took some of the water on the face of the earth and carried it up to heaven with him, separating the waters above, the heavenly waters, from the waters below, the earthly waters, and thus forming a watery barrier between heaven and earth. And God saw what he had made, and he did not declare it good. In fact, if you look at Genesis 1, day 2 is the only day God does not look at his work and declare it to be good. Which tells you, I think, that that watery separation of heaven and earth was not intended to be a permanent feature of God's creation. 
It's interesting that other places in Scripture that refer back to day two of the creation account, like Psalm 102, for example, picture God as he takes this water from heaven to earth with him, stretching out the heavens like a curtain or like a veil, putting some kind of barrier between heaven and earth, a a, a watery veil separating his heaven from the realm of earth. It's interesting, too, in the temple, which is a kind of cosmic model, uh, a model of heaven and earth, a model of the whole creation. Uh, there is a veil, of course, uh, that, that, that symbolizes this cosmic veil. There's a veil in the temple, a curtain, that separates the most holy place from the rest of the temple that seems to correspond to that, 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 that veil that God put in place on day two of creation. But that veil put in place on day two of creation also seems to be symbolized by the bronze lava, a big bronze uh, basin or uh, bronze bath, basically. It, it holds water. And it was put up on pedestals in the tabernacle and the temple. It was elevated, so it's the water that is above. And as the priests pass into the most holy place, they had to go up to that heavenly water, as it were, and wash themselves as they entered into what is an earthly copy of the heavenly sanctuary. They've got to pass through that water on their way into the heavenly presence of God on earth. It's interesting, too, that almost every time someone has a vision of heaven in Scripture, they see this heavenly ocean, the waters above, the waters that separate God's heaven from our earthly realm. So, Ezekiel chapter 1, the prophet looks up into heaven uh, in his vision, and he sees God, but he says he's looking through a crystal sea. He has to look through a sea of crystal to see God's throne. In the book of Revelation, when John has a vision of heaven, he sees a throne sitting upon a sea of glass-like crystal. In the hymn, Holy, 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 this is uh, the, the glassy sea where the angels, the cherubim and seraphim, are casting down their golden crowns on this glassy sea that John sees in the book of Revelation. That's the sea that was made on day two of the creation. The first ascension in the Bible, the first time you have movement from earth to heaven in Scripture, is when God forms that heavenly ocean. Uh, Perhaps you can think of that heavenly sea the same way we think about moats around castles. Why would a king build a castle and then dig out a moat around his castle and fill it with water? Well, it puts a watery barrier between his castle, his palace, and everything else in order to keep people out of his castle who don't belong there, in order to put a barrier, to to, to create a separation between his castle and the rest of the land. Because his castle, obviously, that territory is special. Well, in a sense, the heavenly sea, this heavenly ocean, served the same purpose. What then does the ascension of Jesus mean? It means Jesus, the king, has crossed over this moat, He's crossed over the heavenly sea into God's castle and taken up his throne. He has taken his seat in the throne room of God. One of the reasons we want to celebrate the ascension and and, and have this Ascension Day service is because this is an event that is greatly neglected and greatly misunderstood. And yet it is an event that is so vital to our understanding of what Christ has done for us. It's so vital to our understanding of our salvation and the privileges that we have in Christ. The ascension is not mainly about explaining why we don't have Jesus with us on earth. 
Uh, there are some people who think, oh, well, you know, Jesus, they didn't, they didn't see Jesus anymore, so they had to make up a story, and so they just made up a story about him going into heaven. That's not the case at all. It's not some made-up story to explain why Jesus is not with us on earth. This is actually an absolutely necessary piece in the gospel story. There's no good news. There's no salvation without it. We will not fully understand the privileges that we have as God's people, even right now. And we certainly won't understand the great privileges and glory that are to come unless we understand something of the ascension. So let's just say you're going to take a sort of journalistic approach to this event in history and ask those fundamental questions. Who, what, why, where, how, those kinds of questions. What do you get? Well, you ask, what is the ascension? Uh, it's clear from Scripture the ascension is the entrance of Jesus into heavenly glory. The glorified Jesus entering into his heavenly glory, taking his seat at his Father's right hand. The ascension means we now have a friend in high places. The ascension means Jesus has entered into heaven to intercede for us. He ever lives to intercede for us. He's praying for us continually. Uh, it means he's reigning over all things for our sake. He's seated on a throne, ruling over the cosmos. And even as, as John's gospel says, uh, he's gone into heaven to prepare a place for us. So Jesus is very busy. The ascended Christ is very busy. He's not just sitting there on his hands. He's not twiddling his thumbs with nothing to do. He's very busy from his perch in heaven. When? When was the ascension? Well, Scripture tells us it's 40 days after Easter, 40 days after his resurrection. He was lifted up into heaven, and of course that 40-day block is significant in Scripture. That's a significant number in itself. But on the 40th day after his resurrection, he was lifted up to heaven on God's glory cloud as the disciples stood watching. And this is an event that must be very important because all four Gospels, as well as the book of Acts, report the historical event of the ascension. But when we talk about the when of the ascension, it's important for us to not just think of it as a once and for all historical event, and that's it. The ascension describes not just this historical event that took place, this once and for all happening in the life of Jesus, but it also helps us understand his present status. It's a way of describing his present status as a priest who has offered an effective once-and-for-all sacrifice and who therefore can do what no priest could ever do in the Old Covenant, and that is take a seat. There was no place for a priest to sit down in the tabernacle or the temple because they were never done with their work, but now Jesus, as a priest, has taken his seat because he's completed his priestly work in that sense. But it also describes his status as Lord as the one who is king of kings, who has been exalted to the highest place and given a name above every name. That's what his ascension means. He's gone up to his Father in heaven because he's been exalted above all. Well, how did the ascension happen? Well, here we have to confess, we really don't know. It's deeply mysterious to us. We know heaven is a place of some sort, but we don't know how it's related to the places we're familiar with. We don't know how heaven, heavenly space, is related to our earthly space. We don't know how the heavenly and earthly dimensions interlock and interact. We just can't really say too much about that. But we do know that it's a place and that Jesus is there in his body. Uh, we know he, as he ascended bodily. And so we can say the dust of earth is now enthroned in heavenly glory. And he really is in a place, even if we can't locate it on a map. We have to say heaven is a, a place, a created place. 
So that leads into where, the how and the where really go together. Where is the ascended Jesus? Again, he is in heaven, the place of God's glory, the place of God's rule, the place of God's light and peace, the place filled with God's love, the place where God receives ceaseless worship. That's where Jesus is, sharing in that glory, the glory of his Father. And so who? This one might seem to be the simplest question of all, who ascended? But actually it's kind of trickier than it seems when we look at Scripture as a whole. Yes, Jesus, the incarnate God-man, the crucified and resurrected Messiah, is the one who has ascended. But there's more to say. In his ascension, his people have somehow ascended with him. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he took us with him. The ascension is not just an individual event, it is a corporate event. It's not just for Jesus, it's for his people. And this is really the amazing thing. It was foreseen in the Old Testament scriptures, for example, in Daniel chapter 7, one like the Son of Man ascends to the Ancient of Days, but the next thing you know, the saints of the Most High have ascended to the Ancient of Days with him as well. It's there in the Old Testament, but it's also all over the New Testament. And so Ephesians 1 describes Christ's ascension, and and really his resurrection and ascension are one piece. They're almost treated as the same event. Ephesians 1 says God's immeasurable power raised Christ from the dead and has now seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. But then Ephesians 2, the very next chapter, goes on to say, we have been seated with him in heavenly places. And Ephesians 4 adds that in his ascension he led captivity captive. Now, who are those captives? Are they those who are earthbound and who have been in bondage to sin and who are now being set free in some way so they can follow him into heaven? Or is this a way of describing the spirits of the departed, the old covenant, who went down into Sheol, even the righteous went down into the underworld, before Christ came, and now that he's ascended, he's set the captives free from Sheol, and he's brought them into heaven with himself. However that's to be understood, clearly Jesus doesn't enter into heaven alone. He brings others with him. Or consider this, in Acts 2, Peter's preaching, and he says, Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. This Jesus you crucified has now been exalted to God's right hand. He's ascended into heaven. But then Paul in Colossians 3 says, Since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul says, Christ is in heaven, seek him there. Christ has gone to heaven, you have to go to heaven to meet with him. Paul beckons us heavenward. Paul invites us to ascend into the heavens where Christ is, to seek him at the Father's right hand where he is right now. The book of Hebrews is all about this. Hebrews 4 uh, says Jesus has passed through the heavens, uh, referring to his ascension. Hebrews 8 says Jesus is our high priest, the one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews 9 says Christ has entered not a holy place made with human hands, but heaven itself in order to appear in God's presence in our behalf. Hebrews 10 says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So in Hebrews, there is no question Christ has ascended into heaven. He's made his entrance into heaven as the one who offered sacrifice on the cross and then who was raised from the dead. 
But Hebrews also makes it clear he has not ascended alone. Indeed, he ascended into heaven to open up a way for us to ascend into heaven as well. And so we are invited, even commanded, to ascend throughout the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is an invitation to the church that says, come into heaven, come and enter heaven. Jesus has opened the way for you. The door is open. Come and enter heaven. And so Hebrews 4 commands us to draw near to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and help. In prayer, we ascend to the heavenly throne room of God. We come before the throne of grace in heaven. Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25, we read this evening. These verses elaborate on our ascension. Uh, There we are uh, invited or even commanded, you could say, to draw near to God. Having had our bodies washed with water, that's a reference to our baptism. Let us now draw near to God. Let us now enter the heavenly sanctuary, the holiest place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he has opened up for us. These verses are showing us in and through Christ we ascend into the heavenly sanctuary when we're gathered for worship. When do we draw near? When does this happen? When does this glorious ascent take place for the church? Verse 25 says it's when we gather together for worship. Don't forsake this gathering, Hebrews 10 says, because to miss out on this gathering is to miss out on God's presence. To miss church is to miss your weekly entrance into heaven with God's people. Your weekly ascent into the heavenly, most holy place. Hebrews 10 says we do this because we can do this because we've had our bodies washed with water. We've been baptized. We've crossed through that heavenly sea, as it were. We've had our bodies washed with heavenly water, with water from above. And having crossed through that heavenly sea into God's most holy place, the heavenly sanctuary, we can now minister as priests. That's really the whole idea there, that baptism makes us priests. And what do priests get to do? Priests get to minister in God's sanctuary, in God's heaven. That's what it means to be a priest. A priest is a person, by definition, who has sanctuary access. Hebrews 12 serves as another proof of this same truth, speaking again to the saints who are gathered for worship. Hebrews 12 says, You've come not to Mount Sinai, that is an earthly mountain of doom and judgment, like Old Covenant Israel did. No, he says, you have come to the heavenly Mount Zion. A Mount Zion that's that the top of this mountain pokes up into the heavens. And that's where you come, to the heights of Mount Zion. The heavenly Zion. He goes on, he says, you come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and the spirits of just men now made perfect. What is he saying? He's saying in worship we enter heaven, the true most holy place, the true holy mountain, the heavenly city. We're in the presence of angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, including the dead in Christ, who now dwell in the heavenly presence of God, the spirits of just men who have been made perfect. We're in heaven with them. I mean, think about that reality. Your ancestors who died in Christ, they're worshiping with you, and you're worshiping with them every Sunday. It's truly an amazing thought. We're worshiping with angels and archangels. Every Sunday we acknowledge this truth with what is called the Sursum Corda, a little piece of our liturgy known as the Sursum Corda. That's Latin. Sursum Corda from the Latin. Uh, It's Latin for lift up your hearts. 
And so in the liturgy, I'll cry out, lift your hearts up to the Lord, and you will respond. We lift them up to the Lord. That's our ascent. And then we'll sing the doxology, a song fit for the heavenly sanctuary, where we tell the heavenly hosts, have you ever sung that and wondered, why are we talking to the heavenly hosts? Can they hear us? Well, apparently they can in some way. We speak to the heavenly hosts and call on them to praise God as well as creatures on earth. And we lift up our hands as we sing. And this is an important gesture too, I think. We're like a little child at that point in the liturgy, looking up to our heavenly father, ready for him to lift us up into his arms, to take us up to where he is. That's what's happening. Our heavenly father is lifting us up in his arms. So we ascend into the heavenlies where we're with Christ who is seated at the Father's right hand. And we know that in some sense as we enter into the heavenlies, we are seated with Christ at the Father's right hand. Of course, this theme of the church's liturgical ascent into the Lord's sanctuary on the Lord's day is a major theme, maybe the biggest theme of all, in the book of Revelation. Revelation is about a lot of things. There are a lot of things going on, a lot of layers to it, certainly. But Revelation, more than anything else, is a worship service that describes the church's participation in the liturgy of heaven. And so just to give you a taste of this, in Revelation chapter 1, John tells us he's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. So it's the day of gathered worship. He's exiled to the island of Patmos. He seems to be a congregation of one. But here he is. He's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, the day of worship. And what happens? Well, the whole book is structured like a worship service from beginning to end. It's really much like the liturgy we go through every week because our liturgy is patterned after the heavenly liturgy. It's a model or a copy of the liturgy we see in the book of Revelation. So in Revelation 1, John is called to worship by being given a vision of Christ. He's called to worship as he sees Christ. Then in chapters 2 and 3, he calls on the seven churches to confess and forsake their sins. Then in chapter 4, he ascends into heaven. He lifts his heart up to the Lord and joins in with the heavenly liturgy. It's as if he joins a worship service already in progress. In Revelation 4, he looks up and he sees a door to heaven standing open and he hears a voice from heaven saying, come up here, there's the invitation into heaven. And then John is in the most holy place. Immediately John finds himself in the heavenly sanctuary. He's drawn near to God. And he joins in the worship taking place all around the throne of grace. And the rest of Revelation shows us what this heavenly liturgy looks like, culminating with the Eucharistic feast, known in the book of Revelation as the marriage supper of the Lamb, and concluding with the benediction as the church, the new Jerusalem, descends from heaven at the end of the liturgy, so Christians can go out and serve the world. They've experienced the life and the joy and the peace and the presence of the kingdom in the heavens as they've ascended, and now they descend and they're to go out and share those gifts with the world. In Revelation, there is an ascent into God's heavenly presence very early in the liturgy, and then there's a descent back into the world at the end of the liturgy. We ascend out of the world for worship and we descend back into the world for mission. That's the pattern given to us in the book of Revelation. But there's one thing John wants us to understand 
And that's this, this ascent that he makes in the book of Revelation is not just for Jesus. Jesus comes and he ascends into heaven and takes his place on the throne uh, there early in the book of Revelation. And of course, John has his ascent. But John wants us to understand this ascension is not just for Jesus. It's not just for John, something he gets because he's an apostle. The whole church makes this ascent into heaven. And Revelation 15 shows us that. What do we see in this chapter? There are seven angels with seven plagues, and these plagues will exhaust God's wrath. God's wrath on what? Well, in the book of Revelation, it's God's wrath on Old Covenant Israel, those who are guilty of crucifying Jesus and haven't repented. These judgments on the old creation will culminate with the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. A lot of Revelation is about that. This judgment on Old Covenant Israel, this transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. These judgments are called plagues because Israel has become like like Egypt. And the destruction of that Old Covenant order is going to be described in the next several chapters. Chapters 16, 17, and 18 as the plagues are poured out of bowls. The same bowls, it seems, that would be associated with the Lord's Supper. Chalices, they could also be called. But chapter 15 describes what God is doing for his new covenant people in this transitional era, this shift from old covenant to new covenant. As this shift takes place, what new privileges is God giving to his new covenant people? If Israel is going to experience an Egypt-like judgment, what are the saints going to experience? They're going to experience an Exodus-like deliverance. And of course, those things obviously go together. Verse 2 describes the sea of glass. There is the heavenly ocean created on day 2 in Genesis 1. But now we find the sea has fire shining on it or through it. It's somehow, somehow fire and water are mixed in this vision. Well, if you've got a fire shining through this clear crystal-like sea, what are you going to have? The sea is going to look red, right? This is like the Red Sea. It's going to be another Red Sea crossing. It's a sea shining red with fire. Or perhaps the fire is there to remind us of the pillar of fire that led the Israelites through the sea in the Exodus. Whatever the case, the saints cross the sea and celebrate by singing a new version of the Song of Moses. If you go back to the book of Exodus you find that the Israelites cross the sea in chapter 14, and then in chapter 15 they celebrate by singing the Song of Moses. Well, it's the same sequence here. Only now the Song of Moses is also called the Song of the Lamb. The saints have passed through the heavenly sea into God's throne room, and now they praise Him for His great deeds, for His justice and His faithfulness. They ask in their song, Who will not fear this God? For He alone is holy, and all nations will be brought to Him. It's a song of victory. It's a song of confidence. It's a song of joy. And this is the logic of the song. If heaven has been opened up to us, if we now have sanctuary access, how can we ever doubt the goodness and the faithfulness of this God? How can we ever doubt that God's purposes will be accomplished? If God has brought us into His heavenly sanctuary, He can bring the nations into His heavenly sanctuary as well. And indeed, that's God's new covenant program. It's not just for Israel. It's for the whole world. This salvation and this invitation into heavenly glory, the heavenly sanctuary. And then verses 5 and 6 go on to describe the sanctuary in heaven now being open, filled with the incense-like prayers of God's saints. 
And when God answers those prayers, the wicked are judged, the nations are delivered, the world is changed. And when the temple is finally destroyed in 70 AD, then the saints can fully enter into the heavenly sanctuary. On this side of 70 AD, the heavenly temple is ours. It's the only temple we have. The heavenly sanctuary. This is where we go when we worship. In fact, it's interesting. At the end of Revelation, we're told there is no more sea. I don't think that's referring to the oceans that we are familiar with in our world, the earthly oceans like the Pacific or the Atlantic. I think it's actually a reference to the heavenly ocean. That watery barrier that separated heaven and earth. In the end, heaven and earth will become one. There will be no more sea, no more veil, no more barrier. Earth is destined to share in heaven's glory. And even now, Christ himself is a passageway and a ladder connecting heaven and earth. And when you come to understand this, when you see this, it's got to change the way you live. To know that you're not just... Uh, an earthly creature, but you have heavenly access. It's got to change the way you worship, the way you look at worship. There is more going on in the liturgy than meets the eye. When we gather for worship, heaven opens. And mystically, in a mysterious way, we truly do ascend into the Lord's sanctuary. The heavenly, most holy place. Let me close with this. When we say the Sursum Corda in our liturgy each week, when we lift our hearts up to the Lord on Sundays, don't think of those as throwaway words. Those are not empty words. Don't think that that's just stuff we say because Christians have been doing that for the last 2,000 years. No, those words are charged with meaning. There's a whole theology poured into those words. And when we come to understand even bits and pieces of it, we start to see what a great privilege it is that we have. In Christ Jesus, living as his new covenant people, heaven has now been opened to us. Yes, we can lift up our hearts to Christ in heaven above. We can enter the true sanctuary and come before the throne of grace. And this is why you need to be in church on Sundays. Because this is truly your greatest privilege to draw near to God in his heavenly throne room. Going to church is not a matter of law, it's a matter of gospel. It's not a got to, it's a get to. If you've got a weekly invitation to heaven, how dare you pass it up? This has got to shape how we participate in worship, not just encouraging us to show up, but it's got to shape how we participate in worship, how we understand what it means to gather together in Christ's name, to hear his voice, as it were, as he speaks to us through his word, as we eat his supper, as we feast upon his flesh and his blood. Every Sunday we join in the worship of heaven. We engage in the heavenly liturgy. We participate in the very things Revelation describes. John Calvin understood this very well. He insisted that the Sursum Corda be in the liturgy. And he said that's the point at which we make our ascent into the heavenlies. And this was really crucial even to Calvin's understanding of, of the Eucharist. How Christ is present to us in the supper. That's what Calvin Said. He said, believers have no greater help than public worship. Believers have no greater help than public worship, for by it God raises his people upward, step by step, as if in chariots, bearing us up to the heavenly glory. Jesus rode on a kind of chariot cloud up in the heavenly glory. Calvin says that's what the church does in public worship. Worship is your weekly chariot ride into heavenly glory. 
And Calvin, again, sees the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, as the ultimate sign of this heavenly glory, the sign that earth is being taken up into heaven. In the liturgy, the very fact that bread and wine are brought into the heavenly sanctuary, there's nothing more earthy, in a sense, than bread and wine. They both come from the earth, but they're brought into the heavenly sanctuary with us. This is the surest proof that God is bringing heaven and earth together. God is making heaven and earth one in Christ. In the Eucharist, the stuff of this world, The earth is taken up into the glory of the kingdom. It's a preview of what is to come at the last day when not just the saints and not even just bread and wine, but the totality of our lives and the whole creation is brought into the eternal and heavenly kingdom where the whole creation comes to share in God's heavenly glory. The Eucharist is a heavenly meal, a sign of what is to come. At the table, as we approach the table, we even sing the song of the angels from Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy to the Lord God of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. We're singing the song of the angels because we're eating a heavenly meal. And that word Eucharist means thanksgiving. And that's because at the table, what do we do? All we can do is give God thanks. Because at the table, we're really given a clue to what Christ's ascension into heaven means for earth. That earthly bread and earthly wine become to us heavenly food and drink. And again, this is a sign to us that God is restoring this world. That God is heavenizing earth. That God is making the kingdoms of this world the kingdom of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a sign that God's love has become the life of the world. In the Eucharist, we get a little glimpse of what is and what is to come. In the Eucharist, we see the creation becoming what it is destined to be. We see the church becoming what she is destined to be. A royal priesthood coming before the throne, singing praises to God, giving Him thanks, feasting at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And understood this way, the Eucharist really is a picture of what the life of heaven looks like even now. Eucharist, giving thanks, after all, is the state of the perfect man. The perfect man is a man who gives thanks. That's what Adam failed to do, give thanks before he took the food from the tree. What did Jesus do? He gave thanks before the bread and before the wine. Eucharist is the only true and full response we can make to God's gifts of creation and redemption and of heaven itself. Christ is the perfect Eucharistic being. The one who lives to give thanks to His Father. But as we ascend to the heavenly throne in Him, as we are seated with Him in heavenly places, we become Eucharistic creatures as well. Creatures overflowing with gratitude, overflowing with thanksgiving to our God who has done these things for us. The ascension of Christ means the door to heaven is open. The ascension of Christ means the door to the kingdom is open. Let's give our God thanks. Father, we do give you thanks and praise for giving us Christ Jesus, for giving us access to the heavenly sanctuary, 
for giving us this sign, even the Eucharistic feast, that this world will be transformed, that this earth will be brought into heaven, that earth and heaven will be made one, stitched and joined together, merged together in Christ Jesus, who is gathering up all things into himself. The ascended Christ, the one who is our priest ever interceding for us, the one who is our king ruling over all things for us. We give him thanks and praise. And we pray this to you, O our great Father, in His name. Amen.